Hey, Patrick Gray here. Here is a recording of a panel I hosted at the Splendour in the Grass Music Festival in Byron Bay, Australia. The panellists were Greens Senator Scott Ludlam from WA, NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake, Edward Snowden's attorney Jessalyn Radak, underground author Sulet Dreyfus, and yours truly acting as moderator. I'll drop you in here with Thomas Drake's initial comments. Enjoy. Yes, I joined NSA as a senior executive, and what I was confronted with uh, back in, right after, in the days and weeks after 9-11 was massive uh, domestic uh, surveillance, uh, turning the United States of America into the equivalent of a foreign nation uh, for dragnet electronic surveillance on an extraordinary scale, uh, massive multi-billion dollar fraud, waste, and abuse, and NSA choosing to hide what it actually knew about 9-11. All of those things I blew uh, the whistle on within channels uh, over many years through many channels, including two congressional investigations and yet other formal government investigations. Uh, long story short is that the government decided that I was a bad guy. And of course, you know, that's why I'm dressed in black right now. I'm pretty bad, you know, I'm a shadow here in a black tent. Uh, so now you get to see the real me in public, right? <laughs> so. Um, no, it was pretty bad. I mean, you know, they put me under investigation. They had me, the FBI was following me around, electronic surveillance, uh, trying to break into my computers at home uh, over a number of years. And long story short is they raided my house in 2007. Uh, they showed up with like a dozen armed agents and tossed it, took away a bunch of stuff. They tried to figure out how to um, charge me. And in, under the Obama administration, they decided that I was a really bad guy and that I had committed espionage and that I obstructed justice and I had lied to FBI agents. And so I got this indictment handed down on me and I was facing 35 years in prison. And fortunately, largely due to the person next to me, Justin Radak, um, I went free uh, in June of 2011. Uh, so, yeah! <laughs> extremely fortunate. Uh, all because I held up a mirror to the government and because I had taken an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, and for that, I became a criminal. But, but is it fair to describe you as a somewhat reluctant whistleblower? Because it seems that what your approach was is you saw some things going on that were a little bit dubious, and you thought, oh, well, I'll escalate it up through these sort of internal channels and they'll take care of it. And then nothing happened, and then they started pushing back on you, and you sort of got sucked into this bureaucratic nightmare that resulted in you giving an interview to uh, Siobhan Gorman, who's a national security reporter in the United States, who was then working for the Baltimore Sun. It seemed like your actual act of whistleblowing came because you were frustrated by the internal processes, because you'd tried to do it right and those processes had failed. Is that a fair assessment? That is a, I mean, it's a fair assessment that I went through every channel that existed uh, that, you, that was available uh, to complain to blow the whistle. There was actually former statutes in the United States allowed to do that. But because of the egregious nature of the violation, I mean, this is the White House approving mass domestic surveillance. The government's in willful violation of the Constitution and spending billions and billions of dollars on national security for what? Just to you know, make contractors rich. And then they're hiding information about 9-11 about that, they, that they knew they had, that they actually had not shared properly with others. And so I ended up going to the press you know, under the First Amendment of the United States, freedom of the press, and I shared with a reporter what I knew. And for that, you know, I was charged as a spy. 
we're going to come back to your story in a little bit, uh, but I want to ask you, Jocelyn, you know, Thomas mentioned that a lot of this surveillance happened in the wake of 9-11, and it seems, I've, you know, I've been reporting on this area for quite a long time, and that's brought me into contact with people who work in these agencies, uh, some who still do, others who left. It seemed like 9-11 did really change a lot of things, and the rule book sort of went out the window. Is that true? Absolutely. I mean, on my side, as a lawyer at the Justice Department, I was dealing with another one of the biggest scandals of President Bush, which was torture. And again, the ethics rules had gone completely out the window, and the same thing was going it's on. It's not torture, it's freedom tickling. It's enhanced interrogation techniques, freedom tickling, right? <laughs> Yes, think of whatever euphemism you want to for all of these sins of, um, of the different presidential administrations, both Republican and Democratic. And yes, I feel like the ethics rules that govern the Justice Department, that governed all of national security and intelligence agencies in the U.S. were secondary to the war on terrorism, which was basically anything. National security became the religion under which you could pretty much do, have carte blanche to do whatever you wanted to do. It strikes me as odd too because 9-11 was nearly 13 years ago. Uh, I was in Las Vegas last year at a large security conference where General Keith Alexander, who was the head of the NSA at that time, gave a speech. Uh, I, I got a recording of the speech and I took out every time he said 9-11, Al-Qaeda, you know, USS Cole, World Trade Centers, and I strung them together and then played them alongside Benny Hill music. And my listeners thought this was, this was quite funny. But it does seem that we're using, uh, governments are still using this justification of the terrorist boogeyman to justify all sorts of stuff that just is legally wonky. I think that's absolutely right. Fear-mongering has been the way that the administration was able to get, a, get away with a lot of the things that really pushed the legal envelope in the beginning. But even now, 13 years later, and after we know that in the United States all these surveillance mechanisms failed to thwart any terrorist plot, despite Alexander's lying initially that it thwarted 54, when in fact he later revised his testimony, his testilying, to be, oh, it only really stopped one. It could have been stopped I, in other ways. I must correct you. I do believe they were able to successfully prosecute a New York taxi driver who sent $2,000 to Al-Shabaab, which of course justifies all of this. Which could have been stopped by other uh, legitimate law enforcement means without uh, surveillance. But yes, that's what they used. Keith Alexander is full of shit. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that here. That's a technical legal term, okay, just in case you're wondering. He's gone now. He's in the private sector offering his services for $1 million a month. $1 million a month. Yes. Uh, his security services. Yes. Unless yeah. he shits gold nuggets, I don't quite see how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Fear is worth a lot of money. Fear it is, is worth a lot of money. But it's still being used, as, I, as most recently in representing Edward Snowden, the idea that, oh, no, part of what he exposed the terrorists know about the terrorists already knew they were being surveilled. I can guarantee you that. Um, and I don't think anything that he revealed has somehow, we don't have any evidence whatsoever of any concrete harm. It was like in the trial of Chelsea Manning in, in her court-martial, the United States kept yelling you know, about all this horrible, horrible harm. But when it came time to do a damage assessment, they produced absolutely nothing. 
Now, it's not just in the United States where the government is using the threat of the terrorist boogeyman to, uh, to justify new laws. Scott, I want to ask you about this. We've got some uh, interesting new laws that are being proposed by uh, our Attorney General. One of which is the, the, the Australian Liberal Party's very elegant solution to the whistleblowing problem, uh, which is to actually threaten to put journalists in jail for reporting on things that are designated as security intelligence operations. That's a determination made by the head of ASIO. Me as a journalist, if ASIO find out I have some documents under this proposed law, uh, and I'm about to report on them because I feel they're in the public interest, ASIO can come and say, no, you, you can't report on them because it's a designated security intelligence operation. Uh, and yet, you know, I, I can't remember too many buses exploding in Sydney. I can't remember too many uh, terrorist attacks actually happening in Australia. And yet these laws are being justified by the threat of terrorism. Do you think it's overkill? Well, it is overkill, but that's one of the reasons why it's nice. Firstly, that you're all here. There's all these amazing bands out there, and yet you decided to come here, so thank you for that. And also um, that our friends have joined us from the United States, because the debate in Australia around surveillance, terrorism, uh, transparency, and the power of, of government is happening inside this little bubble, and it's actually really difficult to bust it open and get a bit of context, and that's what you guys can provide. So thank you for making your way um, to, to Australia. The laws, ironically enough, that are uh, in play at the moment that George Brandis introduced into the Senate to a, a fortnight or so ago, it's not the data retention stuff, and I'll trust you that you'll ask something about that a little bit later, but it's quite substantial expansions of ASIO's powers for warranted and warrantless surveillance. And it's being justified in part, not that there's anything at all in the bill to do with this, but it's being justified in part because they're genuinely, and I think legitimately worried, about uh, people coming back from the catastrophic civil war in Syria and now that conflict in Iraq. And I makes me kind of feel a little bit sad that the, the laws are being introduced and justified in that sense that would, in fact, expose journalists and whistleblowers to risk of prosecution. Because these designations can mean whatever they say they mean. The drafting in the bill is extraordinarily loose. But this is happening in part because uh, we invaded Iraq in 2003 with our good friends and allies, the United States government. And uh, there weren't actually jihadists in Iraq at that time uh, because there was a secular regime that we blew the lid off and have helped create a civil war there. And now they're saying, well, that's increased the, the threat of terrorism and so we need to increase our surveillance powers over Australia. And they do that without a hint of irony. It's very impressive when you think about it. Scott, do you think we can also partially blame Rupert Murdoch? And I love to partially blame Rupert Murdoch wherever possible. For anything. Uh, but some years ago, a journalist with the, the Australian newspaper caught wind of a series of raids that were to be conducted by ASIO and the AFP. Uh, it was a terror investigation. And the Australian agreed to hold off, I think it was for a very short time, something like 12 hours before they would publish it. And that forced the AFP and ASIO to actually act much sooner than they would have. It really blew their investigation. Uh, to what extent do you think this proposed change is actually for that valid reason that the Australian were being dicks? <laughs> I've never thought of it like that, you know? It takes, it takes a journalist to bring out that kind of angle. 
<laughs> I th- one one of the things of the, de- the debate is being progressed, uh, I think, very sadly on the front pages of the Daily Telegraph. You want to talk about leaks and whistleblowing? Who dropped the contents of that bill to the front page of the Daily Telegraph before the bill had been introduced to Parliament and any, any MPs or anybody else had seen it? Like, is that a national security breach? I'm waiting for the prosecution. Well, it's funny, isn't it? When stuff is, you know, an authorised leak, uh, there's never any investigation, and yet the Australian government actually, you know, constantly refers government leaks that are uh, inconvenient to the Australian Federal Police, and people wind up prosecuted for, over these. Okay. Same thing in the United States. Um, do you, the biggest leaker in the United States is the US government. And they have these authorized leaks, which to me is an oxymoron. But then when people, public servants, actually leak or disclose information in the public interest, then they get prosecuted for espionage, a law that was meant to go after spies, not whistleblowers. So it concerns me both in the U.S. and to hear that Australia is considering legislation that would criminalize the act of whistleblowing and criminalize committing journalism. I want to bring Suleta into this conversation now because uh, she's all about the whistleblowing. She's very excited. You can see she's like, come on. Um, so uh, we've got an interesting situation where on one hand the Attorney General is bringing in these uh, laws that among, you know, as well as uh, potentially imprisoning journalists for the uh, horrible crime of doing their job, uh, they would also boost the penalties for people who are covered by the Official Secrets Act. Uh, If they were leaking uh, documents to media, they're going to wind up in prison for something like 30 years instead of 10, or I I can't remember the precise uh, numbers. And yet we've also had some pretty weak legislation, but it's, it's an attempt anyway, at introducing laws to protect whistleblowers. So what is the state of whistleblowing in Australia? Uh, how safe can people be if they see some egregious violation of the law or privacy in their day-to-day job, if they get evidence of surveillance and they leak that to the press? How safe are they, Silette? Um, it's an interesting question because I just co-authored a, a report that analysed um, on 14 key criteria Um, the whistleblower protections across all the G20 countries and rated Australia's um, uh, legislation, both applying for the private sector and the public sector. And it turns out that compared to the other G20 countries, Australia does pretty well in the public sector for federal government employees, as long as you don't work in the intelligence or law enforcement area, because, you know, obviously no one ever behaves unethically in those so if, areas. So if you work for the Department of Agriculture, you should be okay? That's yeah, what I mean? you're, you're mu- as long as you blow the whistle internally. What's really good about the new legislation that was brought in um, is for contractors and employees of the federal government who aren't in the intel, you know, mill, law enforcement area, um, if you at least try to blow the whistle internally, there are protections in there for going to the media, and that's a first. So that's great. In terms of how Australia does on protecting people who whistleblow in the private sector, you know, not so well. In fact, pretty poorly. Um, But that's true of a lot of the G20 countries. There's a lot of work to be done. And that's really important because if you think about the large corporations that went bust um, around the global financial crisis, um, leaving shareholders out of money if, you know, there was fraudulent dealings or superannuation funds, you know, employees not being able to get their money. Um, If you think about 
oil rigs you know, deep in the ocean, you might be really worried if you work and you see a health and safety issue, you know, you don't want people to die out there. So the private sector, it's very important to have whistleblowing legislation. Um, the, the real concern that I have besides the, the private sector for Australia, though, is that there is a giant carve out in the legislation for anything to do with intelligence information. And, and, and that, uh, that's dangerous because we know from history that the more secretive an organization is, the more likely it is that things can go wrong because you don't shine a bright light on it. There aren't people really watching it. There isn't the public watching it. So I'm going to bring it back to you know, our actual topic here, which is more about surveillance than whistleblowing. Of course, the whistleblowing stuff is relevant because we're talking about a lot of stuff that we know now thanks to uh, Edward Snowden's leaks and he leaked an absolute ton of stuff to the media uh, before jumping on a plane winding up in Hong Kong and then eventually Russia uh, where his future is uh, actually pretty uncertain uh, but one of the things that has really come through on the Snowden leaks is this concept of metadata uh, being something that you know you don't need to bother with a warrant for metadata uh, for those of you out there who don't know what metadata is uh, it basically means things like phone call records uh, you know just like I called Sulet, you know, 2 p.m. yesterday from my house in Byron to, you know, her hotel in Byron, and that's just all, all logged. Or I emailed Faye, and, uh, who's over there, the forum organiser, thanks Faye. Uh, I emailed Faye, and there's a record of that having occurred. So it seems that the National Security Agency and many other agencies say, well, we can actually intercept that information uh, as a government and we don't need to worry about a warrant because we're not listening to anyone's conversation. Is that sort of the thinking? Uh, probably Jessalyn is the best person to answer this question. Well, that is the line that they're selling to everyone. Don't worry about it. We're only collecting your metadata. We're not looking at your content. But the reality of the matter is you can actually tell a lot more about someone from their metadata than from the content, a lot of which is garbage. But if I call Planned Parenthood in the U.S., there's probably a good reason I'm doing that, or a suicide prevention hotline, um, or Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what the comparable organizations are here in Australia. But usually there's a singular reason I would be contacting that group um, or calling my doctor, calling Planned Parenthood, and, and, and calling my mother. You can put together and, what's and just going on. And we should on. point out the reason we're having this conversation is because the blockbuster revelation of Snowden is that the United States has, had assembled a database within the National Security Agency that contained the call records, the phone call records of every single American. That meant that every woman in the United States who had phoned an abortion clinic, which is a great example, uh, that information was being held in a government database. And there has been, since, two federal court decisions that have found that that program was in violation of the American Constitution. How does a program like that get signed off on by lawyers from the Department of Defense. How does that happen? Well, the lawyer signed off on these programs in secret, and the president did signing statements in secret that no one had access to. And then they blocked the courts. When people kind of caught wind or accidentally found out that they were being spied on, like the Muslim charity al Haramain, and tried to bring a lawsuit, the government has shut down every single lawsuit trying to challenge these programs as being unconstitutional by saying you don't have standing or we're asserting a state secrets privilege like we're the king 
um, and, and shutting down these lawsuits. So it's been very difficult to challenge programs that are completely enacted in secret, policies in secret, and laws And, and there is a secret passed. court, the FISA court, which authorizes this activity operates behind closed doors in complete secrecy. And they hear only one side of the argument. They're in charge of when the government does actually get a warrant, which is only in a small number of cases. And they've approved, for example, in 2011, they approved every single application that came in front of them. They're basically a rubber stamp. They're a bunch of judges who hear from the government. They hear the government's arguments and they approve the warrant. Now, I, I guess we really need to ram home that point that a lot about your life can be inferred if someone has access to your metadata, which might be when you logged into Facebook, who you spoke to on Facebook, who your Facebook friends are. That's all metadata. That's all metadata, and yes. And currently, uh, there is no... I mean, a lot of the interception laws uh, that allow government uh, law enforcement bodies to obtain warrants. I mean, if they want to see my Facebook message to you, mm -hmm. they need a warrant. If they want to know that I'd spoken to you on Facebook, they don't. Uh, and of course, the volume of electronic communications that we have these days is so very great that a lot more can be inferred from our metadata than when metadata just meant, uh, you know, phone calls, you know, landline to landline and who was sending who physical mail. Uh, That's correct. They can literally track, use your metro card, or I don't know what you call it here, your subway card to get on the, the train to go to work, and then it logs when you get off the train, and then it logs when you go to your bank and make a withdrawal, then it logs when you go into your building, and then it logs... I mean, your whole day can be tracked using metadata electronically, if you think how many times. There was a Dutch politician who actually had his own uh, metadata from his... He, he retrieved his own metadata from his phone company, and then made an animation on a map that just showed everywhere he'd been in a two-week period, and it was pretty terrifying. Pretty revealing. But huh? I, wanna, I do want to ask Tom, because he's, you know, this guy is an ex-spook, right? So be careful. But now he wears black. I don't know if that's good or bad. He's I like keep a telling... Rogue. There is a shadow Ed here. Ed Snowden and Tom Drake, you guys need to wear pastels or something. <laughs> he's a, hang on. He used to be a spy and now he's not. Does that mean you're a rogue former spy? Rogue former spy. Yeah, I was spying on behalf of the American people. That well, I would, I, I would just like to ask you, as someone who was involved in intelligence, in the intelligence world, how important is metadata? Because I have spoken to people uh, in those sorts of agencies who say if they had the choice between being able to tap someone's phone or look at all of their metadata, they would absolutely 100% go for the metadata every time. Is that something that you agree with? Is it that powerful an investigative tool? Extraordinarily powerful. I mean, I can tell you my own case. Speaking of getting framed, though, I was actually meeting in a place called Turf Valley in Ellicott City, Maryland. And it was with some former NSA colleagues and another a congressional, a former congressional staffer on the Intel Committee. What we were looking at was technology that would actually discover, uncover health, health uh, insurance fraud. And this, this is fraud that's being committed in the United States to the tune of tens and tens of billions of dollars. You're actually in the hundreds of billions of dollars every single year. The government said that we were there because we were in a conspiracy against the United States of America, and the fact that we were together in the same place was proof. So the metadata, it didn't matter what the content was, it was the fact that we were there together by virtue of association. Don't you have some sort of freedom of association thing going on in America? Well, there, is, there was this thing called the First Amendment, you know. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm it's, not with it's it. apparently conditional now. Yes. The government can determine whether or not it really applies. Now, this metadata issue is uh, is actually kind of a big deal here in Australia as well. Uh, I think in 
one of the financial years or a calendar year, just in Australia alone, there were 300,000 requests for metadata on Australian individuals, on Australian citizens. And when you actually drill down into the data and where it's going, it's, it's not just the police, it's not just ASIO. I think the Victorian Taxi Directorate was able to successfully obtain metadata from someone's uh, telephone company. Uh, the RSPCA as well, they do good work, but I'm not sure I want them having my phone records. And now there is a uh, proposal, Scott, uh, that would force your telecommunications company. A lot of these companies are, are not keeping this information anymore. And the Australian government wants to introduce a law that would force them to retain it so that if they are investigating a crime later, they can pour through it. Is that an accurate description of that law? Yeah, that's pretty close. So that's the so-called data retention proposal that's been kind of smouldering away below the surface and every couple of years it pops up. Um, so this is the third time in my recent experience that we've had to contest this idea of data retention. If you can imagine what these guys have been talking about, it's huge volumes of data. It's a lot of stuff. The internet service providers, the phone companies, they, they can't use it for billing purposes. They don't really need it. And so they're just throwing it away. And various ISPs have different policies on how long they keep it for. But one of the first privacy principles in Australia is you shouldn't collect material that you don't need. Don't indiscriminately collect stuff and then it can't be used and abused. The Privacy Act, that little thing. That old thing, that old chestnut. So now we've got a proposal that is being cooked up by the Attorney General's department and they run it up the flag for every new Attorney General that comes through. And now they've found a completely compliant one. I think they've found their perfect guy. Hands up if you've never heard of George Brandis, never ever. Oh, bless. That's, hey, hey, ignorance is bliss in this instance. That's so sweet. Anyway, so he's this, he's this guy uh, who the first, his first act as Attorney General was to employ a former ASIO Director General as his Chief of Staff. So then that helps you fit together why they brought these ASIO amendments forward as his first kind of major act in this space. But data retention is deadly serious and effectively it will force the service providers to maintain all that material for two years. They don't particularly want to. So if you look up a guy called Steve Dolby, who's the chief, is or was the chief regulatory officer for uh, IINET, second biggest ISP in the country, they are dead against it for technical reasons, cost reasons, and kind of your privacy and civil rights reasons. So it's going to be a, a, quite a big campaign and we're all going to need help on that. But surely, Scott, there are legitimate reasons why government departments or police services would want to access that sort of information. I'm yes. thinking of... Uh, you know, perhaps there's someone who is a murder suspect, you might get a, a, an idea of their movements. You might be able to rule them out rather than rule them in uh, by accessing this sort of information. I mean, it's, it's all very well and good for us to sit here and say, ah, the government's abusing metadata. Uh, but it does have legitimate uses, doesn't it? There's no question. I guess these guys will probably back this up as well. There's no question it has legitimate uses. Uh, my concerns are twofold. Firstly, is that it's all being done on a warrantless basis here in Australia and in the United States, because on the one hand they say it's tremendously important and crucial for investigations, uh, and on the other hand they say it's completely trivial, it tells us nothing about you, we shouldn't need a warrant, it's no invasion of privacy. Um, and the, the second question I guess is that it's completely indiscriminate. So where I think it should be used and has a, an entirely legitimate use is data preservation notices, where people who ha are legitimate targets of interest and that they have these powers now, the police and ASIO, can call the service provider and say, don't let go of that guy's material. Yeah, Preserve that person's metadata uh, until we tell you to stop because they're a person of interest. You know, that's discriminate, that's proportionate. But throwing it over all of you and every child in the country 
everybody from high court judges down to newborn babies having metadata records stored is as creepy as hell. I don't think it's necessary. Now, if you guys aren't completely terrified yet, uh, I want to ask uh, Jaslyn about... There's, a, there's an interesting new building in Utah. Can you tell us about the interesting building in Utah in the United States? We have collected so much data on our own people and on innocent people from myriad other countries that we no longer have a place to put it. So we have built a special, we're building a special Utah data storage facility. And Tom can tell you more about the dimensions of that and how much data can be stored on just a single little chip. Can you give them the details about the Utah data storage? That's classified. Well, you know, everybody has a thumbnail, right? Everybody have thumbnails out there? I think you might have offended at least one person. Well, it's possible, but the size of a thumbnail, I can put a terabyte of data. So the facility at Utah, I've actually seen it. I was out there a few months ago on a, on a, a lecture tour, and uh, one, of, one of the coordinators actually took me out to actually see it. It's quite, it's quite extraordinary how large the facility is that you can actually see. It's like five times the, the U.S. Capitol building. And, it and it's, estimated, it's estimated that it can store, one of my colleagues, Bill Benny, former NSA uh, crypto mathematician, uh, estimated that the size of the facility with just current technology can store upwards of 100 years worth of the world's data in that facility. They are just want to creep- collect it. Are, just, we, are we, we creeped out yet? Hello? Put your hand up if you're creeped out. But I, th- okay. I, I, heard, I heard, though, there's plenty of space in the great outback for an even larger hey, facility. Hey, hey, you know, I mean, I'm sure Scott could get together with the NSA and they could make a green facility because these things, apparently this place in Utah is going to suck down $20 million a year in electricity. That's how much data they're storing, and it cost $2 billion to build. Now, the funny thing is, we do know since these Snowden revelations, and this is the one thing that perhaps might make us feel a little bit better, is that these mass surveillance techniques have an absolutely shit-awful track record of succeeding. That... That uh, massive government database of phone records that I referenced earlier, the only public success that we know about from that was it led to the arrest of a Somali taxi driver in New York who sent something like $2,000 to Al-Shabaab, which is a prescribed uh, terrorist organisation. So yay, collecting everyone's information to stop that grave crime. Uh, but I've got to ask, like, it seems that $2 billion is an awful lot of money to spend on technology that seems first of all, to be a gross violation of people's right to privacy, and second of all, doesn't work. It doesn't matter. Surely, surely that money store... could be spent elsewhere, That's right? true, but remember, now security is a growth industry right now. Extraordinary amounts of money are being made by a very small number of contractors. Oh, and by the way, that $2 billion, I get two-tenths about this size could store the world's metadata. You don't build a Utah data facility for just metadata. They want content as well. And it's some, one of the things is that the metadata actually is an index of the content. So imagine a digital microscope that drills down into your life over a period of five years, like they did with me. What do you think they would discover about you? What do you think they collect? All your connections, all your phone numbers, all your Facebook, all your Twitter accounts, every bank account you have, how much could they collect? And then just multiply that by hundreds of millions. You know, it's funny too, just while we talk about the sort of things that these agencies collect, we've got to look at the, the British as well, the GCHQ, actually make the NSA look like a really privacy conscious organisation. Uh, they had this one program where they were capturing every single video chat from a Yahoo user to another user that occurred from Britain to another country. 
they were actually taking every 10 seconds video stills from people's video chats and writing them into a giant database. And the report is actually quite amusing reading because the analysts who wrote it up, and this report has since been leaked, uh, you know, expressed their shock and horror that so many people used it to get naked and show off their bits, you know. So you've got this incredibly dry report written in government speak about the, the level of, you know, cyber nookie that happens over Yahoo video chat. It's just what I mean. I'm glad we know all of these things. I mean, there's there's something in it for everyone, even sociologists. So well, we're exposing um, the collection of bits on those who are exposing their bits. There you go. Wow. Uh, I particularly like the uh, revelation, the Snowden revelation that came out that showed that uh, the GCHQ guys, the, the spooks in the UK, um, had decided that the online gaming world was just you know full of terrorists because people might go on and oh I don't know take on some other identity than their own. So they decided to get into, you know, World of Warcraft, all these online gamings. So here come the orc spies. <laughs> and they're, 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 and they're, you know, no, no evidence whatsoever there were any terrorists in there. But they thought this would be a really good way for them to get paid and spend the day online gaming. You I think this it. gets back to your premise that why are we doing this if it doesn't stop terrorism? And I would submit that we're doing this. It's about population control and controlling people. And in this era of digital data, information is the currency of power, and power corrupts. I mean, obviously, it's not stopping terrorist plots. It didn't stop or prevent the Boston bombing. No, the Malaysian airline, we still don't, I mean, with all the surveillance we have, we still don't know for sure if it was Ukrainian separatists who shot it down. I mean, with all the data, you would think they would have known instantly or even beforehand what would happen. But again, the surveillance is not prevent, detecting or preventing um, any kind of terrorist plots. It's but kind it, of good the, for accident reconstruction, okay, but not for but, but at the same time, like if there were a terrorist event in the United States, the government can stand back and go, hey, we were spying on everyone and we didn't pick it. We were doing everything we could, okay? Even if they don't stop it, they, they have a reasonable case to say that they, hey, we're even violating the Constitution for you people. Okay? Well, they actually did after the Boston bombing. They were like, wow, we didn't do enough. We need to crowdsource a manhunt <laughs> and everyone turn over your digital data, any pictures you have of the marathon, so we can try to figure out who did this. And they essentially instilled temporary martial law and went knocking on everyone's door and searching people's houses, which violates the Fourth Amendment. Um, but again, I think there's been this normalization of giving up your Bill of Rights to the First Amendment, freedom of speech and association, and of the press, due process under the Fifth Amendment, Fourth Amendment um, against search and seizure. The Bill of Rights was there to protect you against the government, but I think in the aftermath of 9-11, it's become so normalized to give up these rights. So I want to ask Scott, actually, uh, about where we can possibly go from here, because, of course, you know, what we have discussed is, you know, some serious problems uh, in the way that agencies that are supposed to be protecting us are going about that. And we should point out, too, that most of the people who work in these places, uh, you know, they do have good motives. Uh, they do. Their, their primary interest is in preventing bad things from happening. But at the same time, when we found out what they've been up to, we're like, yeah, look, we're prepared to wear a little bit more risk if that means you don't get to see my dick pics on my Yahoo web chat. Um, Is that a question? <laughs> getting to it. So, Scott, you know, this is a difficult proposition, you know, in government. How can a government actually solve the privacy problem 
while still allowing these agencies to do what they do. And a lot of it is good work. I mean, we have to be careful not to demonise everyone who works in intelligence and law enforcement because they do valuable stuff as well as violating everyone's privacy. So what does a happy middle ground look like to you? To me, it would start with transparency. Part of the reason that the backlash, and it's an undercurrent here, it's in full swing, I guess, in the United States, but a backlash against the work of these agencies is it's very hard to tell what they do. So if you want to build legitimacy for these agencies, there needs to be a much greater measure of transparency. How does it help ASIO's cause when you discover that they, you know, Australian intelligence agencies were tapping the cabinet rooms of the East Timorese government to help Woodside close a f***ing gas deal. I think that, that, is was, not a, that was ASIS, man. That was ASIS, and now ASIO are going back and raiding the legal, the, the lawyers' offices to basically try and cover their tracks. That's not a national security question, and I think that undermines the legitimate and tremendously important well, work that they do. And this, I mean, we've just struck on something really interesting here because you've discussed transparency. And yet there is an entirely valid reason why these processes aren't transparent, which is that it exposes sources and tactics to people who would wish us harm. That's a completely circular argument, though. But this is, and this is why it's a problem. I mean, I want to get Thomas's thoughts on this because, you know, Thomas is someone who worked within the intelligence community, saw some stuff that went too far, blew the whistle on it. But fundamentally, I believe you're still a supporter of a lot of the good work that is done by intelligence agencies. Do you think there is legitimacy to the argument uh, that exposing sources and tactics is a bad thing. Exposing sources and tactics is, is a red herring because this has been the this has always been the argument. If you if you reveal anything with respect to the secret world, then you're jeopardizing jeopardizing our ability to actually do our work. The problem is in a democracy in particular, you've got to be very careful in constraining. You really have to constrain the power of these secret agencies because they're operating in secret. They're, they're incentivized to hide what they're doing. And the fact remains that they've gone far beyond their bounds. I, I've actually said in the United States that, that the NSA itself is beyond reform. It actually has to be complete, completely redone because they've been such gross violation of the Constitution, existing statutes, and privacy, and in partnership with other national security services across the world, that they're now a direct and compelling threat uh, to democracy so, and I mean, to the sovereignty of who we are as, as individuals. So, Jesslyn, blow it all up and start again. Do you think that's actually realistic? No, I don't think that will actually happen. But uh, to comment on the sources and methods argument, I look, something should be secret in government. I agree with that. I don't need to know about troop movements. I don't need to know about nuclear design information. Those things are sources and methods. But... The things that Snowden has revealed, which is quite a lot, none of those include sources and methods. Even the government has signed off on these articles that have been published. They may have kicked and screamed about it, but ultimately um, Bart Gelman, one of the reporters who's been doing a lot of the reporting on this, said there hasn't been anything published where we really said screw you to the government. So where do you think we are now? We've, we're a year later after Snowden has dropped all of these documents on the world's media. Uh, there is certainly more awareness. There aren't people going bananas in the streets. Uh, it seems like things might be moving a little bit in uh, what this panel, I'm sure, would think is the right direction. Uh, where are we, Sulet, and where do you think we're going with it all? Do you think things are going to get better, and do you think the privacy of Australians, the people in this room, 
uh, from intelligence agencies is better than it was a year ago and is heading in the right direction? I can barely keep a straight face asking that question. <laughs> um, I don't think it's going in the right direction, but you know, our future is not preordained. It could go in the right direction. And the way that it's going to go in the right direction is if all of you guys get on Twitter, get on your email, and send emails to people like George Brandis saying, you know, they don't have to be angry, you don't have to swear at the guy, but you just, if you value your privacy and you don't think it's right that journalism should be made a crime where information is given to a journalist in the public interest that might be secret information, they report on it responsibly, um, then you need to use your voice. And it's really important, and politicians do listen to letters from people. I mean, Scott will nod his head, presumably, at that. Um, even attorney generals from Queensland um, will listen to, to it. So we don't have to have that future. But I, I, I'll leave you with a really scary thought. Um, in one of the big growth areas in computer science uh, is predictive analytics. And this is basically where you take a whole bunch of data, you get a giant database, and you say, well, I know what this thing has been doing in the past, and I'm going to predict what it's going to do in the future. Now, the really convenient thing, if you're an intelligence agency and you've got this monolithic, you know, um, McLennan-style multiple tent in Utah of data from around the world of Australian citizens and all the rest of it, is imagine if you could mine this data not just for the past, but you could begin, you think, to predict, oh, are you going to commit a crime? You know, in five years' time, you're going to be a whistleblower you're going to commit a crime. And I think Tom Cruise made a movie about this based on a Philip K. Dick book, right? But it's not actually science fiction anymore. This is actually a really big growth area in the intelligence area. If we don't rein in and force some transparency and controls on where the intelligence community is going through using your voice, then the future may be one in which literally... People are barred from getting on planes. They are put on no-fly lists because of a suspicion from some computer program that's analyzed the things you said and did on your Facebook page when you were 16 years old. Hands up everyone who never thinks that they did anything in the past that might be a little bit dodgy and says, yeah, no, you can never fly again or you can't get a passport, or you can't get a job that requires a security clearance, or you can't work in government or be a contractor. That's a really scary future, but it's not a future that is, you know, something that's in the realm of science fiction. It's possible, and it's actually heading that way. So I want to ask, actually, the next question is for Scott, uh, because, you know, we've said things that people in this room can do. They can write letters, they can write emails, they can hassle their local represent, uh, representatives. Uh, Scott is actually a senator. Uh, he is a federal senator from WA, and he is the Greens communications spokesperson. Scott, what are you going to do about it? I think you can do a few more things than the rest of us in this room. What are you going to do? Save us. Come on. What are you going to do? No, I know that you're trolling me because you'd be the last person I would imagine would be saved by a politician or believe that that kind of thing is possible. Um, but there is, there's a heap that we can do. So we've got an inquiry. We managed to get a Senate inquiry up into surveillance late last year that's holding a hearing in Sydney on Tuesday taking evidence from journalists, the tech community, we took evidence from ASIO and police agencies, and are basically assembling 
a set of law reform proposals. So countermeasures, uh, legal or technical, I guess, are what we can do. So that's the space that I'm very fortunate to be able to work in is, well, what can we do at a legislative level? What can we either find out to pierce the sort of veils of secrecy that hang over this stuff, or what proposals can we put into the field, like for submission, uh, sufficient types or volumes of metadata, you should need a warrant. There's a proposal right there. There's a bill for that. You could do that. And if you had enough public pressure, you could even pass it into law. Um, a, f a friend um, of mine, Jacob Applebaum, who's a US hacker and researcher in this stuff, um, kind of the first time I met him explained it to me, the psychology of this stuff. The first thing that comes across your mind is, uh, I'm not doing anything wrong, so there's, you know, there's no way that they're going to come after me. Uh, and the, the second thing being, uh, look, I'm, I'm just basically not that interesting, so there's absolutely no reason at all why uh, anybody would be interested in me. And the third thing is, actually, screw this, I'm taking countermeasures. So they could be collective countermeasures like law reform, or they could be personal ones like encrypting your email. If you're involved in climate change activism or if you are a whistleblower, then start looking after yourself. So those kind of countermeasures, I guess, either at a legal or legislative sense, which is one of the things that I'm interested in, but it's personal as well and collective. It's actually looking after ourselves. Now, uh, we're going to wrap it up shortly. I just wanted to actually have a quick riff with uh, our American friends here about one argument that we hear popping up over and over uh, from the intelligence community. In fact, the head of ASIO recently said, hey, we're going to collect this metadata, but we're going to use it to protect you, not sell you a BMW. There seems to be this sort of weird attitude coming from the security and intelligence community that says, hey, you know, we're not collecting anything that Facebook and Google aren't. Uh, but, you know, so we should have access to the same sort of information they do. Although uh, Marcus Ranham, who's a, you know, US security guy, did a speech recently about privacy where he said, uh, you know, when I'm in bed with my girlfriend, there are certain things that, I, that uh, she likes to do to me that I'm not comfortable with, you know, other people in this room uh, doing to me. So the whole idea is perhaps we choose who has our data and, and what they do with it. I, I mean, but where does that line of thinking come from, from within government that if we give data to Google and Facebook, then it should be fair game for them to have Right, it. they're trying to normalise it. Let me, go, let me just say... Facebook and Google can't arrest you and put you in jail. The government can. And if I don't like the fact that... Well, hang on, hang on. When you say Facebook can't arrest you and put you in jail, you mean Facebook can't arrest you and put you in jail yet. <laughs> okay, I'm thinking long term here. Right, right now. But I mean, when I go on Amazon and order books and they tell me what book I might like based on what I've been reading, I can choose to end my relationship with Amazon. I can't choose to end my relationship with the U.S. government surveilling me because it's being done in secret without my knowledge. I'll turn it over to Tom. Yeah, the, the whole thing is I get to choose what's private. I get to choose keep what's private. I get to keep my bits and so someone else is, doesn't get to see them. That's my choice as a consenting adult. Who, who, what right does a government have to actually examine all this, expose it to themselves without my knowledge? Whose data is it really? Who actually owns these bits? And part of this, this pernicious justification is somehow in order to keep you safe, we not only need access to the data, we need to keep it for your own protection. Actually, the protection comes from you. It doesn't come from the government. If you're doing this without my consent, what else are you doing with it that I don't know about? And it's a fundamental question. I'm a living example of what happens when the government decides, you know what, you're a bad person, we're going to frame you. 
Look, history's not kind here at all. And ultimately what's at stake is a sovereignty of who we are as, as human beings. If the sovereignty of the state takes supremacy over who we are as sovereign human beings, then, you know, then that's our fault. That's why I've asked, I've, I've been, every time I go everywhere in the world, in United States, overseas, Europe, Canada, now in Australia, what future do you want to keep? It's ultimately your choice. How dare any other authority, and that's what we're talking about, is authority in secret, secret rules, secret interpretations of rules, secret power, deciding for their own, their own sake to forsake what is ultimately the inalienable rights that you possess as a sovereign human being. I think we're going to have to end it there because they, uh, they do need to actually set up Q&A, but I think a couple of us will come out if anyone has some other questions. I know you had one. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's basically it. Uh, please, everyone, put your hands together for this uh, fantastic panel, uh, especially for these two guests who literally just landed. They're jet-lagged. Great round of applause for them. So thank you. And enjoy your splendour.